Today we're going to continue our preaching series in under this heading of heretics in the battle for orthodoxy. And we have been studying for several weeks now various theological matters. So theology means God's word, theologos, God's word. So when we study theology as a church, just by way of review, if I'm just opening my Bible and I'm in a Psalm and I'm studying the context, the history, the background of that Psalm, we call that biblical theology. Systematic theology isn't unbiblical theology, but it's where I might see a theme in that Psalm, let's say about God. And so I start to explore the other 65 books of the Bible. And I extract from the text all the different teachings about God. And I form what I call my systematic theology. I'm systematically working through the Bible and I'm systematizing what I learn about God or Christ or the Holy Spirit or the devil or angels or humanity or sin or salvation or the church or the end times. I systematize those into what we call our systematic theological doctrines. So doctrines just means to teach. And we wanna do a good job in our church teaching you what God says about these major categories of Christian thinking. Now you will encounter people who will say things like, I'm not into doctrine because doctrine divides, love unites. Well, we've seen how well that has gone in culture where without doctrine to, for example, introduce people to the God of love, people don't even know what love is. For them, love is love. It's, it's unrooted. It's just floating around in the air. It is whatever you want. Christian doctrine defines love. It defines grace. It defines who you are, what your identity is, how to overcome your sin, how to find salvation. So it's not true that doctrine divides and love unites. Doctrine can divide or unite just as love actually divides or unites. Have you ever heard of tough love? That can be a little bit divisive, but it's necessary for long-term relationships. Others will say, I'm not into creeds, I'm into deeds. Well, it sounds cool because it rhymes. I, I just like to do things for Jesus. I'm not into creeds. I don't, I don't care about theological matters. Well, then you have churches that slide into the social gospel where they're out there doing, but there's not, it's not rooted in anything. What does the Bible say about our good deeds apart from God's regenerative work? They're like filthy rags. You don't get any credit for it. So the fact of the matter is that doctrine, deeds, and love all divide and or unite. For, for any of us to be in a meaningful relationship, we have to have boundaries. What can I say to you before I cross the line? What can you say to me? What's the nature of our financial relationship? What's the nature of our sexual relationship? There's boundaries to every relationship. And there's also boundaries to our relationship with God. There are do's and don'ts, depending on who you're with, in every relationship. And there are do's and don'ts in our relationship with God. So we teach doctrine because we want to be united as a church. Now, our church is generally full every week. And chances are at the end of the sermon series, there'll be a few that won't come back. Because they're like, I don't believe that. I don't believe that Jesus Christ is the way. 
or I don't have that same view on salvation, or, or I, don't, I don't care about doctrine. So it, it will be divisive on a certain level. But hopefully, more, more than not, it unites us. Week one, we dealt with theology proper. That is the doctrine of God. We dealt with Trinitarianism, some of the basic attributes and characteristics of God. And then this is our third and final week in the doctrine of Christology, which as you can imagine is all about Christ, the words about Christ. Week one, we looked at the person of Christ. And then because Jesus has done so much for us, we've had to take two weeks to look at the work of Christ. Last time I preached a couple weeks back, you know, Pastor Blake preached last week, did a great job. Last week, we talked about Christ's work in the past. Today, I want to discuss Christ's work in the present and in the future. And by the way, if you, if you read systematic theology books, the crazy thing is they get a little light in this area. We love to talk about the work of Christ in the past, his incarnation, his earthly ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And then it's like, there's, there's not a whole lot here until they start talking about his second coming again. So many people, when they think of Christ's work, they think about the cross. They know he's coming back in the future, but they're not really aware of what he's doing now. But did you know that Christ's work, while, it, while his sacrificial work was finished on the cross, he made that famous declaration, it is finished. Christ's work isn't finished. His sacrificial work was finished in the cross, but his work as a whole is not finished. Christ is continuing to work on your behalf and on my behalf as we sit here this morning. He is at work. He is alive and he is well. His work, Christ's work, spans all of time. We sing a song that's, that has this statement in it. He never stops working. He never stops working. That's true. He never stops working. He's working right now on your behalf and on my behalf. We've been looking briefly uh, each week at the Apostles' Creed, an early doctrinal statement written in the second century, as best as we can tell, updated in the fourth century. And we've been looking at the Nicene Creed written in the late part of the fourth century. And each of these creeds has a statement about the work of Christ. In the Apostles' Creed, it's divided into present and future. It says, he ascended into heaven and is, that's present tense, seated at the right hand of the Father. It's like, I need to think about that. Why is he at the right hand, not the left? And what is he doing? We'll talk about that. And then in the future, it says, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And then the Nicene Creed also looks at the present and future work of Christ, where it reads, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Almost the exact words as the Apostles' Creed. He will come again, it adds, in glory to judge the living and the dead. And then it adds, and his kingdom will have no end. You're like, well, I'm not into creeds. I'm just into the Bible. Okay, I'll give you a creed from the Bible. A Christological creed. A creed that summarizes the work of Christ. I passed this on to my boys. I'm like, you should write a song about this. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what it says about Christ. This is a creedal, it's a song, a declaration about Christ. 1 Peter 3, 16. He was manifested in the flesh, speaking of what we call his incarnation. He was vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, 
believed on in the world and taken up into glory, his ascension. So that's, that's a creed, that's a biblical creed that summarizes for us in one pregnant sentence, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's get into several scriptural texts. You gotta get your fingers warmed up. You can do some thumb exercises because you're gonna be flipping some pages in your Bible. And we wanna talk about the work of Christ in the present and in the future. Again, in John 19, Jesus did say, it is finished. But what he didn't mean by that is, I'm going into retirement. You're on your own. It's finished, but he's continuing to work. So let's talk about the present work of Christ. Now, in order to understand the present work of Christ, you do need to understand the, the past work of Christ, which we've, we've preached on. We believe that he condescended. That's the theological word, you should know it. He condescended, he came down. He was incarnated, meaning enfleshed through the virgin birth. He lived on this planet for about 33 years and he was put to death via Roman execution. And then three days later, not literally three nights and three whole days, but a portion of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, because the, in the Jewish way of thinking, once you get to six o'clock, you're kind of into the next day. So Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, he was in the tomb and then he was resurrected. And how long did Jesus then stick around before his ascension? 40 days. Pentecost happened at the 50 day mark. But for 40 days, for well over a month, Jesus was in public, he was ministering, he appeared to his disciples. Hundreds of people witnessed the risen Christ. It wasn't just two people that happened to be his close buddies that could have concocted a story. The public had the opportunity for 40 days to witness Jesus' post-resurrection, pre-ascension ministry. And then 10 days after that, we come to the Pentecost event, which is recorded in Acts chapter two. So here's what it says in John 10, verses 16 to 18. So Jesus comes out of the grave and he meets Mary. And he said to her, Mary, and she turned to him. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, which would have been like the, the lingua franca, sort of the common a language that's broader and more well-known than Hebrew, written in the same alphabet, but kind of the language that everybody would have spoke. Rabboni, which means teacher, similar to rabbi. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. It's like, what? In other words, don't touch me. For I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father, and your father and to my God and your God. So Jesus is acknowledging that she's a real deal. She's actually a believer. She is a, a daughter of the true King. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Why, did, why is it that Jesus said to her, don't cling to me? Was he like a standoffish sort of a person? Yeah, I don't, don't touch me, I don't like to be touched. Was he concerned with a virus? 
Was he concerned that she hadn't washed her hands or she stunk? Like, why, why was Jesus like, hey, they don't cling to me. It's an interesting and at first read, maybe even mildly offensive statement for Jesus to make to one of his choice disciples. Why did he ask her not to cling to him? Well, it relates to our understanding of the resurrection. So when we die, we go into a physical grave and our bodies remain there until we are bodily, bodily resurrected. When our bodies are resurrected in the future, at the same time that our natural bodies are resurrected, the Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians 15.44 that we will also receive a spiritual body. So we could say then that when we are resurrected, we will both be resurrected and reconstituted. So this body with all of its weaknesses will be resurrected, but it still has its weaknesses. But the cool thing is, it will also be reconstituted into what 1 Corinthians 15 calls a spiritual body. By God's power, we will be raised, resurrected, and reconstituted. Well, when Jesus was raised, his natural body was raised, but it wasn't until his ascension that he was reconstituted. So unlike our resurrection, there's a 40-day delay in the resurrection and the perfecting, if you will, of Christ's earthly body. And so this is why Jesus makes this statement. I've, I've conquered the grave, but, but I've not yet been perfected. My body has been raised, but it's, it's not yet imperishable in the first Corinthians 15 sense of the word. So Jesus is resurrected. He ministers for 40 days. And according to Acts chapter one, he appeared time and time and time again to numerous people during this 40 year period of time. And his sermon was repetitive. I know you don't like repetitive sermons. You want something new every week. But Jesus essentially preached the same point over and over and over again. He was preaching about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, which is grounded fundamentally in his lordship, the kingship of, of Christ over creation. And then the full realization of God's kingly, kingly rule in the future. So we're, this is found in, in Acts chapter one. He appears time and time again. He speaks about the kingdom of God. And then in Luke 24, verses 50 to 53, having preached for 40 days, it says, and he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So this is his ascension. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Why did they, why did they return with great joy? Why weren't they like, what in the world? We got him back and now he's gone again? Because they understood the big picture now. They were continually in the temple blessing God. His ascension spurned worship, not mourning. His death spurned mourning, but his resurrection and his ascension spurned, encouraged, motivated joy and worship. Acts chapter one, verses 10 to 11 adds, and while they were gazing into heaven, 
as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, meaning angelic messengers, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? So now we have this added piece of information that Acts gives, that Acts gives us that Luke 24 didn't give us. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. You know, I've had several friends move away in the last couple of years, and it's a bit of a drag. You know, someone you appreciate, you love, you, you enjoy seeing, you enjoy fellowshipping with. You're like, I get it. You're moving for work or whatever reason, but it's, it's, it's kind of a bit of a mourning period when a, a good friend moves away. We understand that. But it's more tolerable when you know you're going to see him again. When you know there's going to be opportunities for reunion again. And how much more when we believe that Jesus is not only going to come back, but he's not abandoned us. He's not forgotten us. He's necessarily gone to heaven to continue doing a work that is blessing us in the here and now. So because of this, Jesus' departure doesn't leave us empty. It leaves us full of joy and certain of his return. And the great thing about Christ's ascension into heaven is that when he ascended, his ministry on earth is extended to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it's not like, okay, you've got me for, you had me for 33 years, I'm out of here, you're on your own, here's a Bible to read. But rather he sends the Holy Spirit only 10 days after his ascension. And now we have the opportunity, unlike the Old Testament believers, to be indwelt permanently by the Spirit of God, which interestingly in scripture is sometimes also called the Spirit of Christ or even the spirit of the father. Because to have the spirit of the Holy Spirit is to have Christ and to have the father. To have God is to have the fullness of God dwelling in us. Romans chapter eight, verses nine through 11, teach us this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That's, that's now, folks. You're not in the flesh, meaning your identity, your life, your priorities are not fleshly anymore. At least they shouldn't be. But you're in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to you. That's very Trinitarian there. The spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ but if Christ is in you, okay, that's interesting. So I thought the Holy Spirit was in me. Well, he is, but I also have Christ in me, yes. And the Father in me, yes. The fullness of God dwells in us through the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, in other words, we still struggle with our sin nature and our fleshly appetites, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So even as we're dying, so I'm getting older. Every year I'm getting a little older. I'm getting closer to death. My body is, is breaking down. It's moving in that direction. But the life of God is increasing in me because God's spirit is sanctifying me. And hopefully, if I'm living an obedient life, increasingly I'm turning over the controls of my mind, my heart to the Lord. So I'm going downhill this way but I'm going uphill this way. And I also know that someday this downward 
trend toward death will be solved in my bodily resurrection. Verse 11, again, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same spirit that resurrected Christ will resurrect the children of God. He already has a track record. He's already proven his capacity. So we have the hope of eternal life. By the way, the doctrine of the resurrection isn't meant just to be something that you park up here. Oh, I believe that. I believe that. Yeah. Do you believe that? Yeah, I believe that. It's meant to affect your emotions when you're confronted with the death of a loved one. When your body starts to make its downward spiral more obvious, if you know what I mean. When you become more aware of your immortality. Do we like death? We're like, ah, bring it on. No, but it doesn't scare us. It doesn't cause us to shake and fumble and crumble and fall apart. We know that's part of life. We accept it. But we see the big picture. So now Jesus is in heaven. The question arises, what is Jesus like in heaven? And what is he doing in heaven? So here we are at Harvest Bible Church. We're sitting in our chairs. I'm standing on the stage. We're worshiping the Lord. What is Jesus doing right now? Well, I want to draw your attention to four aspects of his heavenly ministry while he's in heaven. So first of all, he is the God-man. So when he condescended out of heaven, he was fully God, but he wasn't fully man. He was fully God, the eternal logos, the eternal word. In his incarnation, he did not give up any of his deity, but he added to his deity full humanity. So now we call him the God-man. We often say he's not 50-50. He's 100% God and he's 100% man. And when Christ was incarnated, that was permanent. The hypostatic union was permanent. So think about this. It's, It's a crazy thought. Christ right now is simultaneously fully God and he's still fully man. So in his deity, he's omnipresent, right? He's omnipresent. When he was in his earthly ministry, we'd say he could be manifesting out of his deity or his humanity. It's like, well, how come Jesus says, I I don't know, but the father knows. He's speaking out of his humanity. How, How could he then go up to someone else and say, I know you've been married five times. How does he have that kind of knowledge? Did he do a background check? No, he's speaking out of his deity. So he's fully God and fully man, but in, in heaven, he, is, he remains fully God and also fully man. What is he doing? Well, the first thing he is doing, Romans 8 teaches us, is Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. So we picture, as John did in Revelation, the throne room of God, God on his throne. And it says, it tells us in the scriptures that Christ is sitting at the right hand of the father. It's like, I've heard that before, but what does that actually mean? Like, what is the significance in our Christology of Christ sitting at the right hand of the father? Romans 8, 34 teaches us who is at the right hand of God, 
who indeed is interceding for us. So he's at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. What does that mean? Does that mean that if you're at someone's right hand, you're special? And if you're at someone's left hand, you're not special? So if I stand here, it's like, you're at my right hand. You're at my left hand. Is there something bad about being at someone's left hand? No. But as we study scripture, this imagery of the right hand of God is really, really important. So let me give you just several references. We're not going to go thumb our way through and read all these out loud, but you can jot some of these down. Right hand imagery. So in, in the scriptures, in Psalm 118, 15 to 16, a right hand is used as an image to praise God's power and ability to exalt us. So in that Psalm, the right hand of God speaks to his, both his power and his ability to exalt those that follow him. So that's one reference. I've looked at them all, by the way. I won't give you them all, but I looked at all of them this week. It's symbolic of protection in Isaiah 41.10. So the right hand of God is symbolic of God's protection over his people, his protective power is mentioned in Lamentations chapter two, verse three. If we look at Jeremiah 22, it helps us to understand that the right hand of God is also a position of power. So when you are placed at God's right hand as his agent, so for example, think of the theocratic kings under the old covenant, David, Saul, all these guys that are supposed to be doing what? Not just ruling on their own, not tyrant kings, they're supposed to be kings that represent God. What does the word represent mean? Break it down. To represent. The job of the theocratic king was to represent God to the nation time and time again. So that's the fundamental role of Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and all the kings that would come after them. Their job is to represent the power and virtue of God and in that sense, you were at God's right hand. So let me give you a negative example of a king that failed to do that and God called him out for it. In Jeremiah 22, verses 24 to 25, as I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand. He was my representative, in other words. He was supposed to represent, he was like my ring representing the power of my right arm into the world as a theocratic king to represent, represent my purposes. That's the idea there. Yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those that seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So this is pre-exile. We studied Daniel a while ago, king of Babylon and into the hand of the Chaldeans. So there we have, it's a negative example, but there we have this notion in scripture that to be at God's right hand is to represent. Does that sound a bit incarnational to you? It does. When Christ came, he represented to us who God was because we tend to forget, we tend to lose sight of. So the, when, when the Bible teaches us that to see Christ is to see God, that's true. Read Philippians chapter two. He is the image of the invisible God. He was the ultimate theocratic king who did his job to represent God's power and virtue into our lives. Now, early 
first century citizens of Israel would have understood that language. Because when James and John got a little puffed up, a couple disciples of, of Christ, and figured they'd see if they could increase their chances of being famous in heaven, <laughs> they go to Christ, and it's so ridiculous. And they say to him in Mark chapter 10, verse 37, grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. In other words, we know there's two of us. Each of them was probably like, I hope I'm the guy on the right. But they understood there's something about the right hand of God. They, they essentially were saying to him, hey, we want to be the theocratic king. Can we be the next David or Solomon? And in his subtle rebuke, Jesus is essentially saying to them, uh, that's my job. I'm both the second Adam and I'm the Davidic king. That's my job. I'm the second Adam in that I'm now the fully obvious, made manifest representative of the human race who has now given us an opportunity to repent of our sins and to find the life that we lost in Eden. And I'm also from the Davidic line. The genealogies of the, of the gospels serve this purpose, both through his mother and father, he's the Davidic king. And he is now representing God to the world. That's not your job. So he calls them out on it. But the point I want to emphasize is that when Christ is declared to be seated at the right hand of the Father, what we should automatically be thinking about is power and authority, power and authority. How many left-handed people in the room? Raise your arm. Did you raise your right hand or your left? <laughs> Shame on you lefties. I have a brother who's left-handed. But if I look out of the room, I, I would just say real quick, maybe 10 or 12 hands went up. So I'm assuming the rest of you are shy or right-handed. So we're not denigrating those of you that are left-handed. But generally speaking, for most people, the right arm is their strong arm. And so that's why when, when the scriptures speak of strength and power, it's like, okay, I can, I can lift much more with my right arm than I can with my left arm. So my right arm is dominant. My right arm symbolizes strength. That's the idea, the power, the lordship of Christ is being manifested here. That means that Christ is currently, listen to this very carefully, he is currently reigning over all. It boggles my mind. Some Christians have this crazy view that the kingdom and kingship of God is entirely future. I dare you to find that in the scripture. So well, Christ isn't king right now. You know, we just kind of work our way through life. Life's kind of awful and terrible. And the kingdom of God is all future. Where is that in the Bible? Jesus was speaking of the kingdom of God 2,000 years ago. Is the kingdom of God fully manifest? No, because not everybody's bowed the knee yet. But there is a sense in which the kingdom of God is now. He is king now. That should affect the way you live. He is king of this church now. And he's going to be king next year and the year after that until he returns. And then there's going to come a time when the full evidencing of his kingly rule is going to be made known. When he comes back, it's going to be really obvious to everyone that he actually is the king. But it doesn't mean he's not the king now. Right now he's the king, seated at the right hand of the father. And so that affects our worship. It affects our confidence He's also sitting. 
not standing. What does that mean? Hebrews chapter one, verse three, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. That's, that goes way beyond Imago Deo language that we're made in the image and likeness of God. Christ, the nature of Christ is the nature of God. How can you deny the deity of Christ and read scripture honestly, as some would do? He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he, that is Christ, upholds the universe by the power of his word. He spoke the world into existence in Genesis 1. He is the eternal God, the divine logos made flesh in John 1. And by his words, he continues to sustain, to sustain, to sustain your life. Like, well, scientifically, I'm just sort of the result of a series of evolutionary chances. And as long as my metabolism's working, my heart's beating, that's why I'm alive. Okay, that's great. There's, there's, there's truth, not to the evolutionary part, but to the fact that your body has functions and it's kind of a closed system and your heart's beating and you have a metabolism and all that sort of stuff that makes you a living biological being. But behind the scenes, guess what we discover? Christ is sustaining you. If Christ were to remove his protective power, his word from you, you just boom, disappear. Isn't that kind of a neat idea? That we are not only created by God, but he is sustaining the sparrow, the constellations, the seasons by the power of his word. Should we steward creation? Yes. Yes, we should steward creation. Of course we should. The righteous man cares for his animal, the scripture teaches us. But the world's not gonna die in a, a, a global pandemic or through a climate crisis or through a universal flood until God and his sovereignty decides time's up. So we have confidence in him. He's sustaining the world. And then... It goes on to say, after having made purification for sins, death, burial, and resurrection, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. To sit is to put yourself in a position of majesty. If you, you, know, you, you watch the movies, maybe the old medieval movies where the knights and everybody come in to consult the king. He's not running around pacing, chewing on his fingernails, he's seated. He's a man of poise. He's large and in charge. So to be seated communicates to us the majesty of Christ, but it also communicates to us his poise. He's unhurried and he's unworried. The opposite of what we're often like. We're worried and we're hurried, right? Oh, such a busy week. Oh, I wonder how that relationship's gonna turn out. I wonder what my boss is gonna say to me on Monday. We worry about all sorts of stuff and we hurry through life and we often fail to stop and smell the roses. I've made that mistake many times. Gotta get the next thing done, you know, clutter up my schedule, never take time for peace, never take time for rest, never take time to enjoy and the years roll by and you're like, well, I accomplished a lot, but I can't say I even enjoyed it that much. But Christ is unhurried and he's unworried. So there's a lot we could think about there in terms of our approach to him. He is our majestic king and he's unhurried and unworried about life. He also is interceding for us. Now this flows from the, the offices of Christ, which we discussed pre previously. He's, he's prophet, he's priest, he's king. 
He's our high priest. In 1 Timothy 2.5, he is called our one mediator between God and man. Well, I guess that blows out of the water, those theologies that say you've got to go and talk to another human being to have your sins forgiven, right? Now, we do believe in confessing our sins one to another. Bible teaches that. We do believe in confessing our sins to another person if they've been the subject of our sin. We believe that. But in terms of the mediatorial work, I cannot mediate on your behalf. I'm not your priest, folks. I'm not a high priest. I, I, I don't have that qualification. You are a priest. You can speak to God on your own behalf. Christ is the high priest that ultimately represents you to the father. But at the same time, he is the one that represents us as our final and ultimate sacrifice. When we think of Christ as a mediator, what, we, what we're referring to there is he's a go-between. A mediator is a go-between. Or a mediator is one who ratifies a covenant. Or a mediator is an arbitrator. That's, that's what Christ is. And what are the practical implications of that? Hebrews 7, 25 to 26. Consequently, so now we're going to get some practical stuff here. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted in the heavens. He's representing you. I've, I can say I have a relationship with God. How does that all work? Christ is representing me to the father. Struggle with the assurance of your salvation? Anybody? Struggle with the assurance of your salvation. Well, if you're living in sin, unconfessed sin, and you don't care, or if you're trusting in the wrong Jesus, you have good reason to question your salvation. But you should never question your salvation thinking, well, I believe that Christ died for my sins. I'm trusting in him alone. I'm seeking to live an obedient life. Not perfect, but I do, I do confess my sins. I'm seeking to live an obedient life. What is the grounding and founding of your assurance? It's not you. It's the work of Christ for you. You're not your own mediator. You're not your own sacrifice. You can't say, it's finished. I did it. That's the work of Christ. So as we, we understand in an increasing way that it's Christ that represents us to the Father as in, in all of his perfection, it increases our assurance. Again, not to mislead, you are responsible to bear fruit through the inward working of the Holy Spirit. If it's an apple tree, it's gonna have apples. If it's an orange tree, it's gonna have oranges. And if it's a Christian, you're gonna see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control being born out in your life. You're gonna see that fruit. But that is the result of the tree that has been planted and is grounded and founded in God. You can't concoct it. Nothingness can't grow apples. Nothingness can't grow oranges. There's nothing about you in and of yourself that can bear spiritual fruit. But if you're grounded and founded and anchored in Christ, you understand that he's your mediator 
you will inevitably bear fruit and your assurance is through the work of Christ, not yourself. So he's interceding for us. That's really awesome. Christ is also being worshiped. This is the third thing. Through his exaltation, we learn in Philippians chapter two, verses nine through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, they should, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the eschatological vision that happens. So that even those that are tyrants and evildoers in the here and now will one day prior to being subjected to eternal hellfire, they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think about that for a moment. Have you resisted confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? If so, you're just resisting the inevitable. Every human being that will live throughout all of history at some point will open their mouths and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will confess in repentance and receive eternal rewards. Others will be angry and gnashing their teeth, but they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is also preparing a place for us in John chapter 14, verse three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Does that mean the heaven's not yet built that he's up there swinging a hammer? Whew, gotta get a few more houses built. A lot of people got baptized at Harvest Bible Church. Need a few more houses now, it doesn't mean that heaven is unprepared or that he is there now preparing, but in his going, he was declaring that he would prepare a place for us. In his going, he was preparing a place for us. So that place is prepared and it is guarded by God. And this is the assurance then that we have that we will be welcomed into heaven. You know, the cartoons where everyone's standing at the gates and the pearly gates and Peter's there with the long beard and there's maybe a puffy sheep off to the side and a few angels running around with halos. And there's, you know, the, the various comics over the years where you got to answer some skill testing questions to get into heaven or something like that. You're like, you're not really sure I'm here, but am I going to get let in? Kind of like crossing the border. You're never really sure if they're going to let you in. It's not going to be like that. It's not going to be like that. They, are, they already have your passport and it has the name of Christ on it. When you close your eyes in death, you'll open your eyes in glory. So that's the present work of Christ. And then in the future, what do we believe about Christ? Well, we believe in the second coming. The timing of his coming is unknown. Read Matthew 24. But here's what we know about the second coming of Christ. His rule will be out in the open. It'll be obvious to all. He will judge the unrepentant. Don't be among them. He will reward, reward the righteous, which we will in turn cast back at his feet because any rewards that we earned in this life have been bestowed upon us by Christ. That's a neat idea. So even in our good deeds, we don't get to take credit for it. And he will reign over the new heavens 
and the new earth. Matthew 25, 31, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, that is the goats, those that are not truly part of his flock. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's the eschatological vision that we cling to. We'll discuss that more in our topic when we deal with the end times theology. But this is our marvelous Lord whom we worship. And it gives us, as we study scripture, a beautiful picture of the work of Christ in the past, but also the work of Christ in the present, which fuels our worship. It fuels our worship. What have we said? Good theology leads to good doxology, meaning praise, which leads to good praxology. So you hear it, you worship him, you live it. This is what unites us in Christ. We are centered on Christ. We are Christians. We are followers of Christ. And so we must seek to understand him and worship him for all that he is. And if we do, we'll continue to be blessed and our lives will be enriched and our assurance will grow and our capabilities to serve him will be extended.